welcome to our first episode. We we launched this tokenomic style community, wrote a few articles, and um, yeah, gained some momentum. And we kind of thought we'll bring it into this into a new format and try out a podcast. So I've got Jason with me, who's also been part of the tokenomic style. And today we really want to talk about Ethereum. Um, yep. Yeah. What I'll what I'll maybe do was I'll I'll bring up the the tokenomics diagram for myself, and then we'll walk you through. And we'll probably do this as an as an audio form, but then we can just see it. So maybe for you guys, I've just recently released these uh, tokenomics walkthroughs where I've just walked through the the whole diagram, and I think that's a that's a cool point to start if you don't know anything about it and yeah maybe i'll do a quick rundown of what ethereum is about so yeah we're really it's it's a it's a blockchain public blockchain that means everybody can join um everybody can download a node um if they have the hardware and join the network and it's a currently a proof of work consensus algorithm uh, mechanism and that means that uh transactions are validated by miners and these miners will kind of to get into the position to mine such a block and get rewarded for it they will need to um <laughs> solve some math problems let's call it that so they have to there's some interesting math problem they have to solve and and basically without expend energy to to gain the the right kind of to validate a block if they do so they'll, they'll get rewarded for it and, and uh, flow that's similar to what Bitcoin, how Bitcoin works, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So Bitcoin is is exactly like the the prime, the prime kind of example. You know, um, uh, you you mine, and they've got this beautiful formula for if you if you mine a block, um, you get like six point two five Bitcoin. Ethereum isn't that that clear and that uh, fine design that we have, but. Um, at least one thing that we know that there's roughly 4.5% annual network issuance, like of the, of the supply, we'll get 4.5% inflation annually of new tokens coming into the, into the ecosystem via mining. Uh, so that's just new supply that comes into the market. And then another and thing, yeah. The, Flo, does that, does that number change that 4.5% or is that like hardwired into the, the blockchain? I think that is hardwired. Yeah, I I need to double check if if that does anything. But I'm I'm kind of like semi sure that it's that that's sort of high hardwired. Don't know. Uh, yeah, for sure. So we can look that up. For okay. So the, so if, so for somebody looking at it, they would say that okay, it's inflationary, but in a in a fixed format, like in a fixed at a fixed rate. Yeah. 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 I can look up um, one of my articles. Maybe I've maybe I've mentioned it in there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, anyway. Um, so then, I guess the other thing that's really interesting compared to to Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin was this was this model where um, Satoshi, after writing the white paper, he just launched his mining and started mining, and that's actually where the first tokens got created for Ethereum. Uh -huh. uh, Vitalik Buterin. Kind of came up with that, 
and put in a lot of work in, in designing and, and uh, defining how the system would work. And yeah, they, they had this pre-mine and there's a lot of controversy around it. You know, a lot of people were like, uh, you, you can't do a pre-mine. That's not really uh, fair, fair launch like, like Bitcoin was. But anyway, so there were like 72 million ETH created um, prior to the, the start of the mining. And that went up to contributors, investors, foundation mm-hmm. and all that. So we call it the Genesis supply. And yeah, that's of course supply that's available um, and, and can potentially hit the market. It's held they're all of, yeah. they're all vested already. Like they're all able to hit the market now. Do you know? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that's okay. like, yeah. I don't know when they launched I, 2015 or 16. I think you don't have to worry. Like anyone who complains <laughs> that it's not fair. I mean, I still hear people complaining that Bitcoin wasn't fair, right? But just because there are these whales that have a large number of tokens and they were one of the first ones to start mining. Um, yeah. when, I, when I listen to people talk about Bitcoin, there's still dudes from the traditional side of the fence that say, oh, look at, look at the concentration that Bitcoin has. It's not fair either. So I think in, in, in however you do it, you're going to have people that are unhappy, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and like parties on both sides are quite extreme, right? So there's maximalists as they call them on the bitcoin side and i think on the ethereum side it's the same so they they always have their their stuff to fight about and it gets quite extreme mm-hmm. i try to not listen to it too much um mm-hmm. what these guys are saying and and because there's there's lots of nuanced um voices out there that that kind of try to find a neutral middle ground between these two and um neutrally try and assess both right okay yeah so a guy i really like to follow um is eric Forhees? like he's been involved in both of these ecosystems um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and done a lot of work and he's, he's on lots of podcasts i think he's like a really good um clear thinker on this and uh yeah he's he's on neither of both teams he's just in for this like the technology and advancing advancing the whole field so i, I think like he's he's a yeah a great person kind of to uh to see this through we'll have to tag him yeah Oh, to the podcast yeah 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 definitely he's one of those so yeah then um we kind of have this genesis supply that's on the market and and the mining supply so both of these hit the market as as supply and users or people like us who invest and maybe want to buy some ethereum you can do that on exchanges like centralized or decentralized exchanges and whenever you transact with ethereum and most of the people know that you pay transaction fees and they're currently really, really high. I mean, so high that you pay like 30 bucks um, for a transaction. And most of you guys have used this stuff, know this, right? It's, it's just very, very expensive. And it's, it's partly due to the, um, yeah, to the system, the, the proof of work and the fact that there's really a lot of people using this system and uh, yeah, that they're working on solving this by, um, uh, they're, they're working on this Ethereum 2.0 and where they want to move to proof of stake and change the whole thing and make it more scalable so that, uh, yeah, we can basically basically transact here and, and, and use less gas. And I think that's super important um, because one thing that I think if you, if you kind of compare it to the internet, right? The internet, some back in, I don't know, in the 2000s, 
it was far from frictionless, right? You would use it and it was really hard to use to do stuff, uh, like to, to, to write an email even, or to even connect because it was so slow. So people oh, yeah, you'd wait really 10 seconds it. for a page to, to load. But yeah, even longer. Yeah. yeah. But then now it's so easy to use, right? There's all this stuff. Like, I mean, we're doing this thing here using Zoom and uh, it's, it's all pretty frictionless, right? To connect and right. to, to do stuff on the internet. And I think if Web3 or crypto wants to get to mainstream adoption, they need to become frictionless as well. And, and part of that is that you have an environment that where you don't pay a lot of gas. So you don't have to think about executing a transaction so that you can transact as, as cheaply as possible in this, in this whole ecosystem, right? And that's, I think, um, one of the things that with Ethereum 2.0 that they're trying to achieve. Um, yeah. So... Like these, so be, like I said, before you move on, like just could you touch on with the transaction fee? People talk about gas, so there's also the gas price, right? And the gas price is to do with the price of Ethereum, is that right? And then the amount that you need it has something to do with how how much data you're actually trying to push through. Would that be correct? Yeah, it. I mean, like. There is a, a complicated, not a complicated formula, but it's a quite um, interesting yeah, way they calculate. They've got this GUI uh, unit of measurement, and mm -hmm. then that kind of prices how much a transaction is. But then also the, the miners play a role into that, like how much you pay. Um, when they, before they implemented this uh, EIP 1559, then uh, all of that transaction fee would go to the miners, some as tip and some as as normal fee, mm -hmm. and that would uh, constantly lead to very high fluctuations and changes in these transaction fees. So the way they were calculated led to them being very volatile. You know, be, be, yeah, because they're kind of calculated that way, and because the network is so clogged up, right? So for a miner, they would only pick transactions to come into a block. That pay the most, right? So it's that's how the market yeah, works. Naturally. Yeah. 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 So there's um that's that's kind of sometimes if you are trying to be a tight ass and and get through some cheap transactions, you might have to wait for quite a while nowadays. What's what what does quite a while sound like? Like say I only <laughs> want to pay at, at most five bucks or three bucks. <laughs> you have to wait forever, yeah. Now I've recently seen this guy on Twitter and he uh he kind of said <clears throat> his transaction went through after 60 days <laughs> because we just recently had these low gas prices because not a lot of people were, were using Ethereum. I don't know why, but um, we had this point where not a lot of people were using it and then gas prices were low. So uh, yeah, his transaction finally went to, through after 60 days. Uh, but yeah. when you say transactions, it's not just transferring of Ethereum coins right like how about the the programs that are running on the ethereum blockchain like how, how what do transactions mean when you say transactions yeah like so that, that's really the main main innovation right that came from ethereum is the ability to run code or mm -hmm. to store code in in a in a block kind of like a transaction mm -hmm. so you could go to a website like um, Etherscan, and mm -hmm. on Etherscan you can 
you can then look for a smart contract and um, you, you can then see a smart contract from, from a page like Uniswap where you can exchange tokens. So you can see the complete code of that smart contract on the Unis Uniswap website and um, uh, sorry, not on the Uniswap, on the on, on Etherscan. And you can see that it that it is basically it's stored on the blockchain, this smart contract, and it has an address, like your wallet has an address. And that's really the the innovation in a way, right? So you so you can write a piece of coding, you can submit it to the blockchain, it gets stored there, and it has an address. So everybody knows, and that is what is immutable then that this piece of coding, if you call that address, this piece of coding gets executed. And that could be all sorts of stuff, um, like, like what Uniswap does, right? So um, this, this liquidity pooling. So you commit money into a liquidity pool, and then um, other parties can access that liquidity pool to um, do an exchange, right? So I have token A, and I want token B, um, and I just go to their Uniswap website and I give my token A and I receive token B. And what happens in the background, there's a bunch of smart contracts that hold liquidity from different parties who provide token A and token B pairs. And then you can, um, you can tap into that liquidity. You pay a fee for exchanging that and that fee goes to the liquidity providers. And all of that happens in, in these smart contracts. Or it could be something as simple as like an, a simple e-scroll um, where you commit some money into the account. And if your goods have arrived and you tell the other party that the goods have arrived or maybe that gets triggered automatically by something, then the funds are released to the other party. So and do all these actions uh, incur a transaction fee or transaction costs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like whenever you send something from one side to another, from one wallet to another, that's actually a transaction because you you want that, and you can see that here, right? So I'm I've got Etherscan open, and wherever you go, you can see all the transactions. So I can go to my wallet address and I can see all the transactions that I've ever done, and um, be that to send something to Uniswap or I'll get some tokens back. All of that is in there, and all that's kind of kept um, here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and these smart contracts they can basically execute transactions too. So then when, let's say we now say that all oh, transaction costs are really expensive, is that a function of the fact that a, a lot of, there's a lot of demand for the Ether coins? Is that the reason? And then the, the price of, and because Ethereum now has a high, high price and that's why the transaction costs are high? I, I don't think it has a lot it has to do with price. I think it has more to do with like the amount of transactions that um, people want to execute at a point in time. So there's this okay. really cool website. It's called like TX Street or something. Maybe let's see mm -hmm. if I can get it up. And um, yeah, it visualizes it. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but, but it's, it's super cool. So it shows a bus and... Um, and it shows like, and this is like the real network, right? So Jason's Gosh. just seeing this for the first time, I think. So you can see yeah. on the side, there's, there's transactions coming in from Tether, from Maker, from USDC, from Uniswap, and all these different from MetaMask. And they're all queuing up for the bus. And then there's the bus. And the bus has like, oh, 144 guai is like the, the, the gas that's going into this thing. 
And whoever's willing to pay that much, he's getting on the bus, right? And you can see the next yeah. bus, they're even charging even more. And the bus has like a certain size of megabytes kind of that they can take in and transact yeah. with, right? So what is happening in Ethereum is there's just more people wanting to transact than the, the system can currently handle. So it's just clogged up. You see the line here at the bus, right? And it's well, what does buses. that mean? So, so let's say we bring it back to traditional econ economics 101, right? Supply and demand. So there's so much demand for this stuff. So how does more supply come, come on? <laughs> this is more supply for handling transactions? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, th this, has, this has to do with scalability of the system. And um, I guess that's, that's kind of something that with, with proof of stake and with sharding, and layer two and roll up that they're trying to solve. Um, so one of the ways that currently this whole scaling issue is is tackled is with um, is with layer two. And layer two means you you do a lot of these transactions, right? So we're still looking at this bus, <laughs> and you you do a lot of these transactions off chain. You don't actually do them on the blockchain, but mm -hmm. you keep track of them in something that's called like a, a Merkle tree. So you keep track on who pays who with the wallets. Yeah. So you can yeah. have exchanges on there. You can have um, synthetics swap programs on there and they transact. And yeah. uh, you keep all of this in this Merkle tree. And then once in a while, you do a batch of all these transactions and you, you, you write them back onto the Ethereum layer one main chain. And so you have like, Think of it in this in this bus analogy, right? So you have like all these people wanting to fit into one bus, and now you're taking all these people, putting them somewhere else, and then you you compress that, and then you only put that compressed version into the bus. <clears throat> and the cool thing is, you if you're using this layer two thing, you still have like the security of the mainnet um, of Ethereum, right? Um, because the the whole transaction all of these transactions that happen, they're still secured by the Ethereum network. You can reconstruct any of the states that have happened. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really one way they're trying to scale and in your terms, trying to in introduce more like supply for transactions to be handled. Wow, okay. And yeah, so. uh, very interesting. And, uh, and uh, so this compressed data that then gets uh, on layer two that then gets transferred does that also have all the information embedded in there just in a compressed format or is it just the let's say the balance the settlement of the different transactions no, no it would have like it would have like um you can you can reconstruct the complete state out of that okay so yeah. it's not just the aggregated final plus minus whatever right it's it's actually every bit of information is still somehow in there yeah yeah so yeah it's it's, it's pretty cool technology and i i think like ethereum 2.0 is even working on sides in in making layer one more scalable and they're introducing like a whole lot of different topics and uh I don't think I can get into the technical details of sharding and how that works, but yeah, what they're essentially trying to do in this bus analogy is trying to make the buses bigger 
so that we can get more transactions onto this bus and um, yeah, that we can, that people have to pay less to get their transactions stored on the blockchain. You could also increase the frequency so that yeah, that's like a whole nother debate, right? Do you want to have the bus move faster, um, bigger buses and whatnot, right? So that's all um, ideas that can go into how to scale blockchains. But yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think like, I don't really think this, this has a lot of impact on the, the token itself, other than people might be leaving the ecosystem if it has too high gas prices, right? So if the, if the usability becomes so terrible that yeah. the, yeah, that you think like, oh man, I can't do this anymore. Like, I don't know, if, if you go to another blockchain, like, of Solana or Avalanche <clears throat> or Terra even there you can you can do a transaction and it's quite cheap to do so you can you can lend borrow you can send money to someone um do all that kind of stuff and it's like dirt cheap so you almost forget about it but on Ethereum you're always like oh god I can't move coins from here to there because it kind of cost me 30 to 40 bucks to do that and that yeah, is so there's a that friction, could be reason there's a for, friction yeah there's so much friction that people might be leaving the ecosystem i don't have any numbers but that might be something interesting to look into to find out right if that actually impacts um interest or network effects for that token hey, yeah that would be really interesting right because at some point you definitely it, it definitely becomes a hindrance that's big enough that people will then look to leave right it's almost like a taxation in a in a country if the taxation everything might be running really well but if you're getting taxed 95 percent on profits you're gonna go yeah work somewhere where the infrastructure is maybe not as good but you get to keep the the surplus and um you mentioned those other those other blockchains earlier right so uh, avalanche solana terror um in terms of besides maybe we can do that conversation another time i'm not sure <laughs> but uh from a usability standpoint be, besides the costs for transactions um for developers is it just as easy to 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 make their apps on those blockchains versus the erc 20 yeah, I guess, I guess um, it like blockchain. it really depends. <clears throat> it really depends on what they, um, yeah, kind of what they, what what the goal of that blockchain is. They all have like different approaches and different ways to do this. Like for instance, if you go to the Terra ecosystem, they've got like a completely different programming language. So they use I think WebAssembly um, to develop code. That means you can use languages. I think like Java. Um, or something similar and solidity like more like maybe like javascript and so the coding is completely different and there's not a, not not as much reuse and uh yeah every ecosystem kind of has their own thing some larger blockchains like avalanche they are uh, evm compatible so they can run the ethereum virtual machine so you can kind of take your coding from Ethereum and deploy it to Avalanche and run it there. 
So that oh, okay. Yeah, I guess that'd be a um and to me that's always something that's that's uh that's really interesting because then they're kind of in a way tapping into the network effects right of this of the ethereum ecosystem because then if if somebody builds a cool app let's say they uniswap builds something and they have uh it doesn't cost them much to move it to another ecosystem they they might just do it right if it just costs them like 10 hours of development to deploy it there They yeah. might just do it, but if it takes them a thousand hours to rebuild it on WebAssembly, they won't. Um, mm. So that's kind of how I think also apps apps grow and distribute to other ecosystems. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I think that's a it's a cool way in a way. There, a lot of these are like compatible with each other. Especially and, uh, will there be will there be bridges to to allow these apps to to link to each other over different blockchains? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, there there are between most of them there are bridges. So uh, maybe I'll show this one here. There's there's a nice image I th- I found on Twitter, and I actually uh, I just want to look at the bus all day. Yeah, <laughs> so <therapeutic>. <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's this one here. Um, it's not it's not by it's by far not complete, but mm-hmm. it shows that. And I'll, I'll link that in the show notes as well. It shows like that Ethereum is connected to the, the to Terra and Solana using something called the wormhole. So you can okay. go to wormhole, and that then works with the bridge. And the bridge kind of you know the wormhole got hacked recently in this um, major thing where they got like I don't know 120,000 ETH, a lot of money got uh, um, yeah got side got got forked out of the system with. Yeah, some interesting dynamics where they <clears throat> use the smart contracts on Solana uh, to pretend that they, I think they had sent more money over than they actually had. And then they managed to bridge it over to Ethereum and get it out of the Ethereum smart contract because that's what a bridge does, right? A bridge is kind of, like you have a, a contract on the Ethereum side and on the Solana side. And if you want to move your funds over, you send your tokens to that smart contract and it's locked. So you, you put 10 ETH into that contract and it's locked. And then on the other side, you get released or minted some other token in the Solana ecosystem that says, hey, I am a voucher to get back that ETH that you have on Ethereum, right? So you right. can take that voucher then and it has the equivalent amount of that. You can run around with that in, on Solana and use it for all sorts of stuff. And if you want to go back to Ethereum, yeah, you can hand in that thing and you can trade it in for your Ethereum again and the smart contract on the Ethereum side will then release your tokens again um, so that you can you can use them again, right? And that's kind of the mechanism. Um, yeah, maybe if I find it, I can I can link that too. There was this Twitter thread explaining how, yeah, how they how they kind of tricked that, tricked that smart contract um, to uh tell the other side that it had way more Ethereum than it actually had. Mm. But with so that bridge yeah. Yeah, they did, yeah. And it, it happens all the time. And um, I think that's important and it's good for the, of course, not for the people who lose money, but um, it kind of helps evolving and securing the whole thing, right? So if something blows up, the community is usually really fast in fixing it, auditing it, and making it better and stronger. Yeah. And um, that's a really cool way of evolving, right? It has something of, of like nature. Um, 
Yeah, like small like, steps, right? Small evolutionary yeah. steps rather than massive, just binary events. Yeah, and it, and that's like how the whole ecosystem works. And what I really like about it that it's made of people that are that are builders that go out there and try stuff, and uh, they try it and then see if it see if it works or not, and let it get battle tested. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that's kind of how these bridges between the ecosystem works. And I think that's a whole nother interesting uh, concept. You know, like how tokenomics flow between these different systems what that does um which i totally haven't thought about it's just yeah that's just an idea yeah. maybe we can look into that someday we have to i mean um let's say coming back to the non-digital world you know with all the stuff happening globally you always get get these um threats right like that oh if if country a doesn't behave they're gonna get sanctioned and if they get sanctioned they cut they're cut off from a certain system, or Swift, let's say. So I'm wondering if there are parallels with how, like how 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 to <laughs> simulate. You know, maybe by studying this, we get a better idea as well of how different actors in the real world would real non-digital world will, yeah. will react to getting their quote unquote wormholes cut. You mean like Ethereum would sanction Solana? If they something don't, like that. Yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering who who's the independent state of Cardano in in our non-digital world. <laughs> Not connected to anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe. That'll be an interesting thing to find out. Um, <laughs> who that could be. <clears throat> but yeah, um, I mean the fact that it is um I guess decentralized means that I think like almost anybody can build up a new bridge like this wormhole um, mm. those are just like smart contracts and these smart contracts are then um, secured by something in that ecosystem and you could easily replicate that and build another bridge so I'm sure there's multiple bridges going between these two or multiple ecosystems right and um that's all possible and mm. i think that's that's something that in the real world <clears throat> you don't have that openness right so if swift because it's like oh no we're not going to let russia transact anymore then uh yeah russia has to what are, what are they going to do right yeah or if you're a trucker yeah <laughs> he all of a sudden can't use your funds anymore um i can't access your funds yeah i don't know maybe that's uh worth a whole a whole episode i think yeah um yeah. to look into how how they actually yeah how it works for them right they now the people in canada they or the, the yeah the people who criticize the regime um they get their funds frozen so yeah. what possibilities do they actually have in the in the current world in the in the traditional finance world like can it if they can't use their credit card to buy stuff anymore how do they do right and then on the other side you have to think like cool all of this crypto web3 stuff is great but like if if you can't use it to buy a coffee yet then or buy your groceries 
that it's that it's also kind of not helping these people, right? <laughs> because yeah, yeah. health in it, but if you can't buy food, then you still have to. And that's interesting. Then again, right? So if you let's say you have all your money in Ethereum, and even though you've gained a lot or whatever, if they cut you off from centralized exchanges, then you can't get your money up out of there. Yeah. Then it's no different from you playing like a you know a computer game where you're in this virtual world where you've made a massive fortune, but you just can't. You still got only ten dollars in your bank account, right? Yeah, like a millionaire in World of Warcraft. Yeah, doesn't help you much. Yeah, out of that, that's that's pretty interesting. Just to think about how. Um, how that will work. I mean, if you could get other people who own goods to transact with you, then that'd be okay, right? If I could yeah. get the guy who, I don't know, the hair cutter to cut my hair and I'll pay him with Ethereum, he'll be fine with that. that that'd well, be okay, what, right? What will probably happen in the meantime is like a black market will come up or spring up where I might be a non-trucker that officially supports the current regime and yeah. I'll take your Ethereum and I'll yeah. sell it and I'll give you cash or yeah, I'll yeah. buy the, or, or I'll buy you your coffee. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like they, they also, this, they also, I, I read this thing that some Canadian banks or the government told the banks to block these wallets from doing yeah. stuff. And I mean, like, yeah, it's interesting, but they can just create a new wallet, <laughs> transfer their funds there. And then, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, the, the government can trace it because they can see these transactions on the blockchain, but they would have to then issue another warning and say like, oh, uh, we, we did not, you know, there's another wallet that you also have to track. And then kind of who out outpaces who, right? So he could send it then to, he could send the funds to five different wallets that he just created. And he has a seed phrase too. And um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going to be hard to track and trace. And then if you do peer to peer, um, you might find somebody who's who's willing and and interested to uh, give you some fiat or goods for in exchange for sending him, uh, yeah, tokens to his wallet. Man, so interesting. Uh, this 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 uh, image you have on the screen it just makes me think so much about you know the real. Um, Let's say let's say states, right? That that have financial systems and they have their own incentives to use the financial systems in different ways. And I know that just with the Olympics in uh, the Winter Olympics in Beijing, there was a lot of talk about how the Chinese central bank digital currency would be launched, or at least launched to a higher degree um, during the event. So I'm also thinking about how that how that would work with Web3, right? Like what would the interfaces be when countries start going to having CBDCs? Um, just so much to think about. Yeah. I yeah, I I don't know. Like a lot of them they wouldn't necessarily be on an open decentralized blockchain system like Ethereum, right? Because the government wants to have control, so they yeah. still want to control how they issue them. So, do do you know anything about how how China has launched their digital yuan? I'm not sure. From not really, not from the technical aspect. But I know that 
for a while now they've been trying it out in a few different uh, cities. And I think at the Olympics, the big deal was they wanted uh, to let athletes and tourists and visiting teams, right, use the, the network and, and be able to, um, I might be wrong, right? I might, I might not remember it uh, accurately, but they wanted to let, they wanted to let um, these different dudes use their foreign currency and you know exchange it for the digital yuan or renminbi yeah so i think it was a test case for that and if china manages to pull that off then you know you can imagine that uh the next time somebody in singapore buys something from somebody in thailand they might be using this other network to transact rather than the US dollar SWIFT system, right? Like just like what you mentioned just now with uh, transaction fees in day-to-day wiring, right? You, there's so many things to think about, like uh, is this person, is this entity on a certain list that I shouldn't transact with? How long is it gonna take? Is there a bank in the middle that's gonna step in to say, no, the wire shouldn't happen? And if the Chinese system suddenly pops up and says, hey, frictionless, transactions between these two different countries that doesn't include China, but you're happy, we're happy to let you use the system. I think there could be a lot of interesting flow on effects because I know that the Western uh, powers that be, they're looking at this CBDC from China with a lot of, let's say they're quite wary of it because I think it yeah. erodes a lot of their power, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. And then, yeah, I guess, <clears throat> of course, yeah, US has an interest in uh, not having um, other currencies stepping up, right? Yeah. Well, but yeah. when I mentioned just now about, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be on a decentralized, uh, definitely won't be decentralized, but I'm just wondering if those centralized systems would have bridges to decentralized systems and and whether it would be a little bit less um cumbersome than than how things currently run like would that maybe even impact things like the need for stable coins and and things like that right? yeah, yeah i i don't know like I, I can only think of ethereum um and uh you know the way stable coins work most of them so like tether or usdc there's a bank um, behind mm. it, right? <clears throat> so there's something like like these guys, and they they then have dollars or something equivalent to dollars, and they hold it. And for each and every dollar or equivalent they hold, they issue something on Ethereum, right? So they create right. like a, a USDT or a USDC. Now you can go into all sorts of discussions and investigations if 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 it's really completely backed. And, yeah. um, you know, of course, they're also corporations. They have to make money. If they just hold plain dollars in a bank account and then put them onto Ethereum, they're not going to make a lot of money, right? But if they put this into yeah. other financial instruments, um, then, yeah, they, they, might be make, they, they might be able to make some money, but then the, the whole backing thing might not be as, as secure and safe. So we're back to the fractional reserve system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like... Yeah. And, and and I think to get to your C, CBDC 
um, question. I think they would, if if they wanted to get something like the digital RenDB onto Ethereum, they would have to do that in a similar way, mm-hmm. right? So they'd put these into a into an account somewhere, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and then these would would then be able to be kind of like a a wrapped or a token version of them that then get transacted on Ethereum. And you can exchange them back into that, into that, into that other token. I can imagine something like that happening, but I don't think the the real thing would would be on Ethereum. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> maybe. Uh, yeah. One thing that we haven't talked about on the Ethereum side is maybe we can talk about the different token standards. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, because I think. It's it's really something super interesting that the ecosystem has has built because like if you think of Bitcoin, Bitcoin just has Bitcoin on its network, but Ethereum has Ethereum and a whole stack of ERC twenty and ERC seven two one tokens. So on top of the Ethereum network, there are tokens like Uniswap, like Ohm, um, and and many, many others that are also tradable on exchanges that have some sort of value. And um, yeah, that, that sometimes even have a utility with different protocols or yeah, and that utility can be governance tokens like Uniswap. That means if you hold them, then you can vote in a governance proposal. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, that that's all kind of this ERC-20 token standard. So you have this token standard and um, if you want to create a token, so if like let's say we and we're thinking about that, you know, for the tokenomics DAO, we would like to launch our own token. <clears throat> then we could launch that as an ERC twenty token, right? We could we could name it the T DAO token or something like that. We could decide how many of the tokens we want to issue, um, and yeah, and then we just have to implement our own token contract based on the ERC-20 interface in a way, right? So that, that, and that then determines that you can transact with it and do stuff. Yeah, and then, and then we, could, we could use that and trade with it, right? So that, w- that would be like the, the ERC-20 side. And that's like the typical tokens that you know out of the Ethereum, Ethereum ecosystem. And of course, other blockchains have that too. They have their own um, tokens that can be created on top of the, the platform, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of ecosystem, be it the bankless DAO. Um, yeah, they really thrive from having such an ERC20 token that can be distributed among the community that has some sort of value that captures some sort of value and that, that can be used to have some utility. And then there's the uh, ERC721 uh, tokens. And there would be non-fungible. And fungible is like, first time I heard it was like, what does that even mean, right? But, did it remind um, you of mushrooms? <laughs> it did, in a way, yeah. <laughs> but I guess, like, if you think of it as like a house or an, a piece of art, right? Yeah. Like every house is in a way unique, so I can't just cha- exchange my house for your house. Um, whereas with an ERC twenty token, if I have a Uni token, I can just exchange it for a Uni token. It's like doesn't matter which one you have. But with a non fungible. That's really the thing, right? It would, it would. I can't just change one for another. They're not exchangeable for each yeah. other. 
really right and and that's yeah. what this what this contract is about yeah and that's how the whole nft space got started right it's this that's the whole idea behind it um that you have this representation of i guess ownership of something right so the way these bored apes or the crypto punks you know these you've seen these profile pictures um that yep. they're sold for millions and millions of dollars is you have this um this hash and i've got a really cool example maybe i can just bring it up um that i recently sent to a a guy uh, who wanted to know a bit about nfts and um <clears throat> I, I sent him this picture right so there's this so the the picture has like it shows an image of a cat right and and that's kind of like the input that you have um and then there's a, a hash function and that hash function generates a hash out of it hash is basically just a string of that uh digital document which is a photo of a cat and then the hash function creates that string and it will always create the same string if you run it again on the same image but if you change just one thing on the image and in this example they they pull a whisker from the cat and that means the image is like slightly different it could be just everything's pixel, changed then the complete yeah. hash is different right so yeah. what this does on the ethereum blockchain you store that you own that hash in an nft right um and that's that's the whole thing so you 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 own the hash of that crypto punk picture and if somebody just slightly changes it the hash would be different it could look different and all that kind of stuff but you can claim that you own this original piece and you can trade that right because so you can sell that to other people who might think it is valuable to do so yeah and that's the whole idea behind it i guess if that makes sense yeah crazy and so if i just had the hash would i be able to recreate the picture or i would need to know the 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 cryptography that was used to create that hash no it's one way like you you can't you can't turn you can the, never, the hash yeah. into the into the image no it's just yeah just that one way but you can do it over and over again it will come to the same result every single time right yeah and i guess that also that's also like fundamentally how blockchains work right they they just create these uh like a block is basically a hash that is created over all of these transactions and then that hash is included in the next block so that you have this immutable reference to the previous block saying oh hey we've created this hash so if you go ahead and change anything in it the next block won't believe you and the reference will be broken because yeah. the the the, this, the hash, the hash doesn't that comes up will be different yeah 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 so that's the whole idea behind it anyway so that yeah that's that's kind of the, these two different token standards um i think they were important cool maybe let's go back to the image and see if we have anything that we haven't um that we haven't covered maybe um a thing a part of ethereum that has recently changed i don't remember exactly when it was maybe it might have been october um anyway they released this uh implementation pack eip 1559 and with that they introduced um burning of transaction fees and the idea was to stabilize and get rid of this volatility volatility in transaction fees you know i, I said this in the beginning like 
you had days where you paid like, I don't know, $270. And then the next day you only paid like $30 for a transaction and it would wildly fluctuate. So they built in this mechanism basically that that couldn't happen anymore. And on top of that, they also made sure that a uh, significant part of this transaction fee that goes off the transaction is actually burned. And the rest goes as optional tip to the miners might get you into the lock earlier. And there's estimates that there, yeah, um, might be like 70% of transactions fees, uh, yeah, burned. There's a website called, uh, I think, Watch It Burn, ETH. And, um, <laughs> These names are Watch the Burn, yeah. So <clears throat> this thing, this website, it's called watchtheburn.com. It will like monitor the amount of burn, right? Uh-huh. So in all time, we've got like 1.8 million ETH burned um, uh-huh. since October, since this thing has been been launched, right? And that's like, oh God, five billion, five billion US dollars that have been uh, burned um, and taken out of circulation, right? And that's the interesting part from a tokenomics perspective is that um, in the beginning, I said we've got like 4.5 annual network issuance that come via mining, and now. Yeah. We've introduced this new, or the community is, and and that's also really interesting, right? So the community has decided to implement this new feature. And they've all of a sudden said like, okay, we don't want to have this like crazy inflation anymore. We want to actually do something that maybe be a bit more deflationary or reduce that inflation a lot, right? And this is actually what this could do. And there's some, uh, yeah, some interesting guys out there that have analyzed this and um, come to the conclusion that uh, before we merge to Ethereum 2.0, that we actually could, Ethereum could become deflationary so that actually um, the supply, the total supply or the, the circulating supply of Ethereum could go down um, because we're burning so much, right? So with the more transactions that happen in this system, the more uh, ETH we're going to burn. I don't think and they have is, any of is this, this. Yeah. Is this burning rate uh, fixed or do we know what the burn rate is? Yeah, I'm just trying to find out. Um, like, is it constant one, or does it does it uh, fluctuate based on how, like how crazy the transaction prices are? Yeah, I'll have to, I don't recall this from memory exactly how the, how the burn is calculated. Maybe I can look it up in the, um, in this article I wrote about uh, Ethereum. But yeah, maybe we can talk about it in the next, in another session. But I, I, yeah. the only thing I do remember is like they had these, um, this like estimate of roughly 70% burn um, of where it would end at. Yeah. And then. And who loses from the burn? Like it's it's all good to say like hey let's make our currency stronger right like let's make it deflationary help the savers out <laughs> but th- there's always pushback because some people like an inflationary environment right so in this case what's the who's who's the, the, the which party gets hurt is it the miners because they get paid less yeah yeah I mean the miners were not really happy with this change as far as I can remember because they would get paid less. Um, and, uh, so that was, that was one thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think like 
for all of the investors and holders of ETH, of course, this is a great thing if we reduce supply. But yeah. the other thing that you have to think about is kind of like, if the community could just change something like that so easily, that's in a way concerning, isn't it? Right. Yeah. So if if they can change yeah. this, what are they going to come up with next? Right. And and yeah. that's what I always think. That's you know I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist, but that's what I really like about Bitcoin. It's like steady; it doesn't change. It's just that's just the system how it is, and they don't they don't they don't muck around with stuff like that. But here they've introduced something like that, and I, it, I mean it's a cool thing yeah. for investors, definitely. And I, I like it that they're <laughs> that they're gonna um, you know kill some of the supply or take it out of circulation. But then you know the, you gotta ask this kind of like philosophical question: What might they do next if they if they start doing that? Yeah, exactly. Because if if say you just spent a billion dollars raising funds so that you can become the world's best Ethereum miner. Sorry, maybe a lot more than a billion dollars, um, and then and then this rule change rolls out and changes your whole ROI. Yeah, your business is screwed. Yeah, yeah. Just because the community thought like it'd be a good idea to do this, you know. Uh, so the Ethereum community is like direct democracy, Switzerland, and Bitcoin's like still following the Ten Commandments. <laughs> yeah, they won't change. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 really interesting uh, the dynamics here, I guess. Um, yeah, cool. I guess. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll we'll go into the whole Ethereum 2.0 in another session. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, maybe that will that will be a bit too much for this first round. My small brain is well and truly fried. Yeah, <laughs> mine is too. So, uh, yeah, cool. Do you have anything else to to wrap it up? <clears throat> uh, um, thanks, thanks for the the run through. I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, it's just cool to learn and cool to see how this, in a way, this experiment's running. Right, the different experiments that are running concurrently and. To me, it feels like a illustration of human psychology live, you know, group psychology, group behavior, um, behavioral yeah. economics. You yeah, know, yeah, you yeah. take away that, that big, um, big, big dog government guy in the middle and you let the, let the chimps run free, seeing how they organize themselves. It's, it's super interesting for me. Yeah, yeah. It always re it reminds me of this like how must it have been to be one of the first immigrants to the United to the to the to the US to this new country right you just go yeah. there and do whatever you want and yeah. um, that's kind of how I always think about this Ethereum landscape it's like this super open ecosystem and you can build whatever you think you like and then you can test it and see if it works right so they built this yeah. automated market maker and it worked and it's wildly successful and a core piece of infrastructure now. And there's so many other new projects coming up, like Olympus DAO, right? That's that's like one that I found super interesting. These guys launching this protocol-owned liquidity, um, that's a, worth a whole nother podcast, right? But they launched this idea and then they test it live. So they've launched somewhat last year and the token went up to, I don't know, $800, $900 per token. And now it's gone down to 
to like 50. And so it's this whole experiment that's going on of what you can do with these tokenomics and how can they and that how can they evolve? And that's not necessarily a bad thing that the token went down to 50, only if you bought it 900, of course. But um maybe this will still, once it grows and evolves, be a really cool stable token that is backed by a whole lot of different um assets, you know, and and there's so many cool experiments that just go on and that happen freely without being um regulated and and stopped in their in their infancy because yeah we yeah they kind of have to be thought through by some central authority mm-hmm. so this is yeah that's kind of what i love about this space it's just this wild evolution of of just building stuff that people are interested in that that works like DAOs. i mean that's yeah another time <laughs> <laughs> another time all right yeah cool and thanks so thanks much for doing this. Yeah. Looking forward to Thank the next you. one. All right. Thanks, everyone. Um, we'll uh, yeah, certainly have a second one of this. <laughs>